a rare but deadly disease hidden in the air you breathe. And I'm in full-blown panic mode. I'd worked my whole life to get my PGA Tour card, and now I've got to go see a hand surgeon. Nearly two-thirds of cases in the United States contracted in Arizona. And actually, if you wanted to draw a really fine point on this, 50% of all U.S. infections occur in Maricopa County. The damage long-lasting. They will never recover. The scarring is permanent. 2021 off to a historic year for cases. So we're now actually ahead of the numbers year to date for 2021 than we were in the highest year on record for Arizona. You may be surprised by what you don't know about Valley Fever. You're listening to a KOLD News 13 original podcast, Danger in the Dust. Welcome back to our Danger in the Dust podcast series. I'm Brooke Wagner, an anchor and reporter at KOLD News 13 in Tucson, Arizona. We've talked about a few of the facts surrounding Valley Fever, and we've talked to Dr. Galgiani, director of the Valley Fever Center for Excellence. What struck us in the last conversation was hearing Dr. Galgiani talk about a vaccine this is a big deal. So we went straight to the doctor responsible for inventing the mutant gene that could lead to vaccines in both people and pets. So I want to introduce our guest right now, Dr. Mark Orbach, University of Arizona Plant Sciences Professor of Fungal Geneticist who invented what is called the Delta CPS1 vaccine, also known, I guess, in layman's terms as a canine valley fever vaccine. So I want to ask you to start off by telling us about how this journey started for you and how you got interested in potentially finding this vaccine or, or this particular uh, mutant spore that you invented. So that's a really cool part of the story. So I'm uh, my interest is in identifying genes that are allow a pathogen to cause disease. So most fungi are not pathogens. They live off dead organic material, so they're said to be saprobes. And there's a very small subset of fungi that actually cause disease. And so I have a friend who works at Cornell, Gillian Turgeon, and she works on a pathogen of corn, a maize pathogen. And she discovered around 2003 or 2004 in her corn pathogen, this gene that was important for virulence on corn. And she called it CPS1, and there's a whole story behind why it got its name. But she called me and said that she saw in the public genome sequence database that valley fever fungus, coccidioides, which I'll shorten to coxy, had a similar gene, had similar gene sequence. And so in talking with her, we thought, well, we should delete that gene in the valley fever fungus to see whether it also was important for disease on animals. So we've been interested in genes that cause virulence in both animal and plant pathogens. I'm in a plant pathology group, but, um, because I'm in Arizona and got interested in working on valley fever also. And so we created the 
CPS1 mutant in valley fever fungus by making a specific full gene deletion of the CPS1 gene. And now you hear about CRISPR in the news, and that's used to make very specific gene modifications in organisms. We did this by a different method that um, we had developed for this fungus for making gene deletions, but it's the same sort of result. And um, so we got into it because of this gene in a plant pathogen that was also important for disease. And when we made the mutant, we then tested it for how it grew. And what we found is that it grew in its environmental form pretty much normally. It produced um, these filaments that are called hyphae, and then it produced spores, which are the reproductive propagules. And, but if we gave it to mice, which are susceptible to this disease, it didn't cause any disease. And not only didn't it cause disease, but it didn't even persist in the mice. And once we saw that it didn't cause disease, so meaning it's avirulent in mice, we wondered whether by the mice being exposed to the fungus for a brief period of time, whether they might be resistant to subsequent infection by a virulent strain. And so we did that experiment. We vaccinated the mice with the CPS1 mutant and then challenged them with wild type spores. And we saw that the vaccine was completely protective. And if it hadn't turned out that way, we probably wouldn't be talking today. Right. So now has it been tested? Uh, have you done trials on dogs? Has it come from mice and now to, to dogs? Yeah, so first we did a lot of work in mice to try to understand the extent of protection. And one of the things we found was that um, there are a number of different um, strains of mice that are used for research. And so first we tested it on a strain called B6, which is highly susceptible to this disease. So in the B6 mice, 50 spores of this fungus is a lethal dose. And that's a very small number of spores. And it caused no disease. And then we tested much higher doses and still caused no disease. And then we tested it in some highly immunocompromised mice and it still caused no disease. So that told us that it's very safe. It's not, there's some uh, innate property of the spore, the mutant, that doesn't allow it to cause disease in hosts. And so we did a lot of work in mice. And then um, about four years ago, maybe five years ago now, we got a grant from NIH to start developing this as the canine vaccine. And part of that grant was to test it um, in dogs. And that was done at a lab in Colorado and what we saw, what they saw, was that it was also highly protective in dogs. And um, so we've written up that work for publication and are waiting to hear now. So people who own dogs and people whose dogs have contracted valley fever and have suffered terribly, which is about 6% is, is what I understand, um, of the cases become very serious or have lost a dog or tried to save a dog and spent thousands and thousands of dollars, they are going to want to know when might they be able to get this? 
how would that work? Um, how much longer and how much will it cost? All of those questions that dog owners who, by the way, I should mention, have been very supportive uh, financially of this research. Um, th those are questions they, I'm certain, are eager to get answers to. Yes, yeah, I, I have to say that the dog owners in Arizona have been fantastic in supporting this work um, and are very excited for the vaccine. When I would go to my take my dog to the vet, he would always ask for how, how's it going, what's going on, and um, what what I found out through that is that the process between inventing something and developing it for commercial use is a long process. Um, so, uh, but dog owners who, as you said, have seen their dogs and in some cases cats suffer, would love to have this vaccine to prevent that suffering. I have a colleague who moved to Tucson three weeks after he moved here. One of his dogs got valley fever and um, luckily I was able to get him to see the valley fever infectious disease specialist in Tucson, Lisa Schubitz, who has done all the mouse work and is uh, one of our um, great collaborators. And they were able to treat his dog, but it was treated with IV drugs and it was more than a $6,000 uh, cost. And the cost of treatment, as, as you said, can be very expensive. And that sadly can lead to people either having to give up their pets or to euthanize their pets. So. The, the idea of having a vaccine to prevent that is really of great interest to, to all of us dog owners. Um, I've had four dogs since I've been in Tucson and we have boxers and uh, three of them had valley fever. They were treated with antifungals, but uh, that can be expensive and it can be long term. And luckily in their cases, the treatments worked, and, but they don't always work. Sure. Oh, boxers are great dogs. I'm I'm glad they're okay. So where are you in the approval process? What happens next? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we're working with a small pharmaceutical company called Anavive, and they're the people who are actually bringing the vaccine to market. And so the way the approval process works is um, it, you, it requires a lot of testing to demonstrate safety, and efficacy of the vaccine and approval for a veterinary product like this goes through the US Department of Agriculture and they have a branch called the Center for Veterinary Biologics, which is in Ames, Iowa. And so they are the people who have to uh, take a look at the application for approval and decide whether it's ready for approval or whether they're additional um, experiments or tests that they want done. So what, as a basic researcher, what I found is that when we were uh, testing the vaccine in mice, we would grow the spores and store them in water. And you can do that for short term, but when you're trying to get a product to market, you have to develop the vaccine that you can put in bottles and then that will be stable for some time. So that's shelf life. And just like we hear about um, with the COVID vaccine, there are times when there are vaccine doses that are expiring. That's because the shelf life has reached its point. And so, so 
probably the biggest challenge has been developing a mixture of solutions, which is called formulation, to put the spores in and then desiccate them so that it will have a long enough shelf life that it makes sense to um, put it to market. And there's been some great progress on that recently. That work is being done by a group at the University of Kansas who has specialized in vaccine formulations. And our, our expectation is that sometime in 2022, the vaccine will be available. So about a year. That is impressive. And do you have any idea, a percentage of efficacy? Like, it, does it wholly prevent uh, valley fever or like a, a 99% uh, success rate? Or do you have any idea on that yet? So we really won't have any idea about that in dogs. The trials that have been done are, are very limited. Um, but it, in the trials that have been done, it's completely protective. And in mouse studies, it's also shown complete protection. So it's very efficacious. And um, we'll, we'll, so, so when you do a large scale dog trial, then you're going to get dogs of all different breeds and mixed breeds. And that's when you will have a better idea of how it works on all animals. So the mice that are used are inbred, meaning which means that they're all of one genetic makeup. And there's a great diversity in dog genetics out there. That is so neat. Do you think, well, I know it, it this will most likely have implications down the road for humans. But it sounds like it is much more difficult going down that path. Why is that? Um, so it has even been difficult developing a vaccine for dogs because there are a lot of costs associated with all the work that gets done before the vaccine is developed. And then whether there's going, unfortunately, whether there's going to be a big enough market for that vaccine for whoever develops it to make any sort of profit off of it. And so we're very fortunate that Anavive was willing to stick out their neck and take this on as a project. Most big pharmaceutical companies uh, don't see it as worth their, their time. And so for developing the vaccine for dogs, the costs of going through the approval process are much, much lower than they are for developing a vaccine for people. But um, our hope is that, so, so we're working with another company, we just started working with them fairly recently, that is going to work with us to try to uh, develop this for people. So there is a lot of interest in that, but that's going to take a little bit longer for approval. And I would imagine it's tough also because this is not really a global disease. This is so regional. Um, so is there anything that we as Arizonans can do to help shine a light on this research and the need for a vaccine? Because it does impact so many people here. Yeah, so that's that's a very good question. Yes, because this is a regional disease. It just affects people in the 
southwestern U.S. and then parts of Mexico and Central and South America. It's much less uh, considered globally than other diseases, although I have to say that there are now a cluster of cases in Washington state. So whether the disease is actually spreading or whether climate change is leading to range expansion, there are a lot of thoughts about that. Um, in terms of what can be done to, um, to assist, I think probably the best thing is to uh, write to your Congress people and senators and saying this is an important issue in Arizona. And there, had, there is some legislation to support Valley Research um, at the federal government level. And so that's one way to, to let people be aware that this is a very serious disease in a limited area and impacts a lot of people's lives in our region. Um, that would be important to do. Uh, one thing as that you mentioned is that um, the dog owners have been fantastic in supporting this. And uh, they've done that mostly by going through the Valley Fever Center for Excellence uh, which has a web page, and there's it's possible to donate money to support some of this research there. And before, so when we were doing preliminary uh, studies for this before we got our NIH grant, those um, dog owners provided significant support that led to us being able to get the data to get that on an NIH grant. That's really neat. Does that surprise you that? there would be that much more concern about our pets even than potentially for the people around us? I mean, people are really serious about their animals' health. Yeah, yeah I think I that, that um, as, as a dog owner myself, that when our pets are suffering, we feel horrible and um, when, People suffer, they can go to the doctor, and um, most people can get treatment through the medical community. Also, um, in dogs, uh, the rate of dissemination of the disease is greater in dogs, about 25% versus about 1% to 5% in people. So dogs appear more likely to need antifungal treatment. And so most many pet owners have experience the need for that treatment, seeing their dog suffer, and then the costs of treatment. And so there's great support for a vaccine, so both they could prevent the suffering and also um, reduce the costs of, of treatment. What exactly are the biggest risk factors? Um, is there anything that we can do when we're, I mean, you can breathe it in or the dogs can breathe it in anywhere, but are there particular risk factors that you know about? So that's a really good question. We've, um, we've been interested for a long time in trying to identify where exactly it is in the environment. So the fungus, grows in the soil and when the spores and when it produces spores and then the spores in the soil become disturbed anybody can inhale them since dogs are closer to the ground they may and they like to dig in rodent burrows um, they are more likely to get a higher dose probably than people are unless people are also 
um, digging in those areas. What we see is that the fungus in the soil is very sporadically distributed. So you can't just go digging somewhere in the soil and find it. And there's um, uh, a group of people who think that it may be associated with desert rodents and rodent burrows. And so that may be that may be one risk factor. And there's some reasonable evidence to support that there's higher risk at rodent burrows. So let's go back to the dog digging in the hole. And that dog has had the vaccine. Can you, in very simple layman's terms, explain how the vaccine is working at that moment to protect them? Right. So we've heard a lot about the COVID vaccine and how it works. And basically, the way the immune system works is by, um, and the way vaccines work, is by exposing the immune system to features of the pathogen that are called antigens. And when your immune system is exposed to those features, it develops a protective response against them. And so for the COVID vaccine, most of the um, protection is by exposure to the spike protein, which is either delivered as a protein or in the case of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine as instructions to produce the protein. And so once the animal has been exposed to those um, those antigens or those features of the pathogen, their immune system recognizes it and remembers to respond and defend against it. And so the valley fever vaccine, the CPS1 vaccine, is a live attenuated spore, which means that um, the vaccine you're getting is spores that um, are able to grow a little bit, but they are unable to grow through the parasitic phase. So they start to grow and then they fall apart. And we think that that initial growing and falling apart is what produces the features that the immune system responds to. So that dog that's digging in the hole and then inhales the wild type spores, when it inhales them and they start to grow in the lung, the immune system will recognize them as foreign and attack them so that they're not able to continue growing. That's that's amazing. Has this been a weird time to be working on a vaccine? <laughs> um, yes, it has. Well, it's been an interesting time to work on a vaccine. Um, yeah. As you were saying, this is a regional disease and an orphan disease. And so the resources that can be put into it are much less and, and for a good reason than those that get put into a global pandemic. But we do see that um, that you can develop vaccines really rapidly if enough effort is put into them that. And so uh, it's been interesting. I think it's also interesting because I think that over the last year or 15 months, whatever it is, people have learned a lot about vaccines and their protection. And you were wondering, you're, you asked about um, the difference between treating dogs and treating humans. And I think that one thing that's sort of interesting is that um, dog owners have much less hesitancy about 
treating their animals with vaccines and even with new vaccines than people because they've seen what the suffering can be when the animals get the disease. So we really need to think about relative risk um, of what possible side effects there might be from the vaccine versus the serious effects of the diseases. That is a very interesting point that um, it, it's, it is easier to see the effects in, in our pets, but if you don't know someone, if you haven't been in the hospital to see someone suffering, um, or you don't know someone who's been severely impacted by valley fever or COVID or whatever it may be, it's, it's, those images are much less available to us. So that's a really interesting point. If you had to guess, and I know it's a total guess, but how far off could we be from um, making this uh, parlay into a human vaccine? Um, well, if you'd asked me five years ago how long it would take to make this into a canine vaccine, I would have said we would have had it done by now. So uh, it it really depends on uh funding and support for development because the ability to make the vaccine is fairly simple one of the reasons so so there had been an earlier vaccine developed for valley fever that was based on two proteins in the fungus and it showed some protection but as the group was developing it they realized that the cost of developing this would be very high of actually manufacturing. And for this vaccine, we're talking about just growing and isolating spores, so it's very simple. So the costs of manufacturing are low, but the costs of all the testing for developing a human vaccine are really huge. So it will require support. And there's there, um, the, the Valley Fever Center and this company have put in a grant to try to get support to the National Institutes of Health to try to get support to start the process of developing it. And if that's funded and um, and the canine vaccine gets on the market and shows great protection, there will be more energy to provide more funding to um, develop the human vaccine. Um, but I couldn't really give a timeline on that. Yeah, that's, that's it'll outside be a of my while, area. though, it sounds like. Unfortunately, it'll be a while, though, it sounds it'll like. It'll be a little while, yes. But it, it, on the on the upside, does that mean that the canine vaccine, and I, I know that there are costs for research and development, but for the actual production, does that mean that it will be relatively affordable for pet owners? So, again, yeah. that's that's not exactly my area. I'm right. learning all about uh, developing things to the market, but basically... So we we believe that's true. That's going to be up to uh, the company that's developing it to figure out what their costs are um, to for production, and then to try to recoup some of those costs. But I I, I my imagination is that it will be reasonably affordable and much much less than the cost that pet owners are paying now to treat their animals. Um, so I'm I'm fairly optimistic that once it's approved, that it's going to get pretty widespread use 
in the canine community. And the whole, um, the, when we wrote to NIH to propose the idea of developing this as a canine vaccine, the idea and the rationale we gave to them, and which, which we believe is that by demonstrating the vaccine is effective in a um, larger animal, that that would uh, provide a reason for developing the human vaccine. And so we still feel that that's the case. Well, that would be great. So when you tell people what you do for a living, what's the reaction? When, <laughs> when, when, especially people who have a fur baby. Oh, well, you know, everybody wants to know when the vaccine is going to be available and can they sign up their animals for trials early? Um, yes, they're, they're very interested in that. Um, people are excited about it and it makes good sense. We took our dog last year to, uh, uh, doggy daycare place and the owner there knew about this uh, and was very excited about it. So there's, there's great interest. Are you excited to give it to your dogs? Well, so the thing is that my dog has already had valley fever. So you probably don't vaccinate dogs that have been, have already had it. The, the, thing about valley fever that we say and the reason that people believe that a vaccine could be effective is that once you've been infected with valley fever and recover, you are protected from subsequent infection. So that's sort of like a, a environmental vaccine, but the risks of the negative effects of getting the vaccine, getting exposed that way are very high. Sure, that makes sense. But I would imagine that for your life's work, this is a pretty good thing to have on, uh, you know, uh, on on your resume is is you go through your career to be able to say that you did this. I think that that's something universally people would uh, will remember you for doing <laughs> for helping their pets. Well, that would be that would be great. So we got into it trying to understand basic features of a fungus and trying to understand what genes are important for making a fungus a pathogen because all of those genes if they're critical for pathogenicity are potential targets for drug treatment we it was very fortuitous that this actually happened to work as a vaccine so we made a different mutant strain of the fungus that also doesn't cause disease in hosts, but does not provide any protection. And so that's, to me, that's very interesting. We can compare these two strains and try to identify what factors are different that allows one to function fantastically as a vaccine and the other one has no protective effect. Um, and that's something that uh, colleagues that we work with who are immunologists are interested in trying to, to decipher. Well, I hope it kind of helps put fungal genetics on the map a little bit here in Arizona and, and makes people grateful to, to have that field because I don't think people have any reference point for what you do otherwise. And now um, maybe they will. Yes, that's true. So I, I, um, when, when one of my daughters in elementary school 
they had a thing where you could bring your parent to school to explain what they do. And so I explained that I worked on fungi and that they're good fungi and they're bad fungi. And most of them are good. They're fungi that make the citric acid, which is a flavorant in lots of things that we drink and eat. And then there's yeast, which um, is used in bread. And I brought donuts for the kids, so they were very excited about that. And I said that there's some fungi that are bad and cause problems. And um, so I tried to give them a, little, them a little perspective on what fungi actually are. They're sort of a cool group of organisms that people don't know very much about. Well, we are glad that you are helping us to fight one of the bad fungi. No, I, fungi is plural, right? No, it's fungi is plural. Yes, <laughs> that's right. One of the bad fungi. All right. Well, Dr. Orbach, thank you so much for your work. It's fascinating how you've been able to achieve this. And I hope you don't mind if we touch back with you when uh, when this gets approved. Let us know or we will check back with you in a few months and see how it's going. That sounds great. Great. Great Thank you for protecting our pooches. Happy Happy to do it. I've got them too, and I know how important that is. All right. Have a great ride next week. Thanks. Take care. Nice talking to you. Groundbreaking research and breakthroughs being accomplished at the University of Arizona right now. Dr. Orbach talked a lot about pets, but we need to take a deeper look at the impact of valley fever in animals. We're going to talk about the symptoms, address how you can protect them as best you can from contracting valley fever in the first place. We'll be talking about that. Be sure to join us next time for that episode of Danger in the Dust.